Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. We interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experience on the topic at hand. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. I am Tribe, DJ, radio host, and music editor at Third. I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer at Third. On this episode, we will be discussing cultural appropriation, the act of a dominant culture taking on aspects of a culture that is not their own and utilising it in some way for their own expression or benefit. We will be considering how the conversation around cultural appropriation has expanded over time, connecting it to its colonial roots and asking the question of where the line between cultural appropriation and appreciation lies. So this episode is on cultural appropriation and just to kickstart it off, I thought it'd be good if we all spoke about the first time we heard of the term cultural appropriation, um, what that incident was and what it was about. That's a good question. You probably still see them, but maybe less these days. But you know, like sometimes when you see a shop that's has like loads of like trinkets and fun stuff from like Asia and it has a sign on it that says whatever the name of the shop is and the sign will be written in like this font that looks like bamboo sticks or like or like like it's mimicking how Chinese characters look but it's an English font and the person who owns the shop will be like a white person and they're selling like fun stuff like from Asia and I think that's probably the first time I kind of got this weird feeling like that's a bit odd so it would be without even knowing what cultural appropriation really is. For me, I think it was probably Amandala Sternberg's um, video, the don't cash crop on my cornrows one, which obviously happens about ages ago now, 2015, so seven years ago. But in it, she basically quite vocally talks about how people are just using cornrows as the start, the hairstyle of Camrose as, um, you know, something just to make them look cool without um, crediting it to, to black culture. And I probably had seen instances of cultural appropriation before that, but, but just because she, in in this video, she, she literally just takes cultural appropriation as her main topic. I think that was the first time it stuck into my head that when people do this sort of thing, when people um, borrow, you know, aspects of a culture and use it to their own gain, this was a thing called cultural appropriation. And um, yeah, I I remember that was the first time I then started to actually speak about it. So it's quite ironic to to think that... um, you know, a young 16-year-old, as she was then, actress, was the person to introduce me to the term. Um, for me, uh, I thought, I'm sure I had heard conversations within the fashion world, but not really connected to me and not really understood. Um, but I think when it really did seem to click, it would have been in the context of maybe Katy Perry and Miley Cyrus. So... Um, Katy Perry had a video, This Is How We Do. Um, this must have come out maybe around the same time, I know, about 2014. 
um, and she has cornrows in her hair. She's kind of got nails and she's doing that. And like this, there's clips of her in very different outfits and styles and looks. Um, and she's embodying aspects of different cultures. So, I mean, I understand it for, to a degree as a pop artist and you're trying to embody different, you know, sides of culture. Um, but many people were questioning, like, especially as, a, I guess, a white woman embodying a certain what would have been considered a, a black homegirl look. Um, and I think the conversation was also extended with Miley Cyrus as well, when um, all of a sudden she's gone from country to the, I can't remember what the album's called, Bangers, where she's collaborated with loads of hip hop artists like um, uh, Will I Am, uh, is it Gucci Mane or whoever? And she did that song, We Can't Stop, and, you know, with a trap beat and all that kind of stuff and adopting the aesthetic as well. But at the same time, under the same vein in interviews, saying that she doesn't really listen to hip-hop and that um, she doesn't like hip-hop and the way that it talks about women and so doesn't really like the whole genre. And a lot of people were like, wait, if you don't listen to hip-hop and then you think the whole genre is misogynistic, you don't know much about the culture then. You don't know about, you know, so I think it it kind of talks about cultural appropriation because one, that was the album and there's the hit that got her really mainstream and she kind of used it and then discarded it like within the next album, but then didn't really fully understand it as well for so many people. Even to this day, if I mention Miley Cyrus to my brother, my brother's like, <laughs> it still resonates. <laughs> The thing in music is really interesting because a, a good example of that I came across is like um, is Rosalia. Actually, I know we have a lot of love for Rosalia, but she, but I think the people who come from that music background, culturally speaking, are not too happy about her becoming the poster child of flamenco. Is it flamenco? Yeah, flamenco yeah. pop. Yeah, flamenco style. Yeah, 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 because. Even though she is Spanish, I think like she's had quite a privileged upbringing and had a lot of like education, training, and whatever. And even though, of course, she's like super talented and good music is good music, I think because the background of that music is more like gypsy music, um, and I think people are just like, who is she to become the poster child of this music? But then you know she she's phenomenally talented, and that um, that first album, or the sorry, the second album, the kind of the concept album, is like yeah it's incredible music but I agree yeah it's kind of like would other people who were born in not born in but like yeah who grew up with that culture have the same platform as she would have had to become so famous with that music yeah yeah it's true I I remember watching a documentary on Netflix about is it Cameron the Isla um I might be butchering his name and I apologize oh yeah. Um, yeah yeah and just in the 70s and the uh I guess some a part of the marginalization that he experienced as a person of that community um, making music that was uh, flamenco and very heartfelt and crossing over to the mainstream, but still being perceived as from a marginalized community in a, the same way you see in the UK if you're from estates and stuff like that. And it, it's that got that association, that culture around it. And then when you hear interviews with Rosalia where she fell in love with the sound because she heard it and, you know, things like that, you know, it's it sounds like she 
she's not from it. She fell in love with the sound and and you question how much connection she genuinely has to it. Because you can love it, but are you from it? I mean, and then is being from it really enough then really? Do we, is that a criteria? I guess it, it depends, especially when you're coming from a marginalised community. And you're right, um, does it bring up the same... It brings up the questions about whether the people who have grown up and lived in it would have the same opportunities to express their culture on the same level and platform. And That's it. It's the question. Yeah, I think with Rosalia as well, just because she is, you know, um, like she's a white, you know, a Spanish woman, for a lot of the Latin community, it's almost like she's become the poster child of Latin music and a lot of them are brown and disadvantaged and et cetera, et cetera. So sometimes when people from a more like powerful or like a group that has more access says they say they fall in love with something and they use it to their own gain, it's like, okay, cool. If someone else who was already doing this from this space tried to do that, would they even be as successful? You know, would the, the mainstream even accept them in? Whereas sometimes they can take in a flavor of this sort of like exoticness uh, through taking an aspect of that culture, take it mainstream and become the poster child for it. And the real community who's been doing this for a while doesn't get acknowledged. Yes, in connection to Rosalia as well, we were talking about the flamenco and how she took from that, cult, from, um, that community and that culture and all that kind of stuff, that history. But then um, what you were saying, Rona, is even another conversation that came about with Rosalia in terms of the Latinx, commu- Latinx community and how um, when she hit the mainstream with, uh, I can't remember what it's like, Conal Tura, um, with a reggaeton beat, she then suddenly became the poster child, not for just flamenco, but then for reggaeton, which then brought up history, like you said, history being important, colonialization, because the Spanish were the ones who colonized um, what's called South America and a lot of South American countries. Um, and so it was like her face and her um, presentation was more palatable as a representation of what reggaeton was, as opposed to the black, Afro, and um, other indigenous communities that created reggaeton um, in the on the islands uh, and in South America, she became like a, a palatable version to kind of promote the genre in this, you know, 2018 or 2019 or whatever year it was. So it, 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 again, if someone has a history of being able to just move across sounds and be able to assimilate because of the fact of the way she looks and the way she appears and how palatable she is, why stop at one thing? You know, it's like a con. And I can see how that can rub and irk people the wrong way, I guess. Definitely linking it back to Amanda Lestenberg's point with the cornrows. It was like, you love cornrows now, you know, Kim Kardashian's wearing them, don't you? And you're calling them box braids or whatever. But black people have been doing this for years. Or do you know what I mean? Not even years. Black people invented Mm. the style, really and truly. And when it's it's on a black body, it's seen, it's perceived Mm -hmm, much mm -hmm. differently. You know what I mean? It's perceived as threatening. It's perceived as as, um, different, alien, unprofessional. But you suddenly put that on someone else and it's cool. It's edgy. Um, so it's also about having con- not only conversations of access, but of 
perception and stereotype and the way we even respond to people's cultures in general. Because, um, you know, recently Kim Kardashian came under a backlash when she launched Kim Ono, her sort of like lingerie a brand and obviously she was trying to play on the whole like kimono my name oh. <laughs> you know I mean? but for Japanese people it was like that is kind of insulting just because obviously number one a kimono is our style of dress number two if you look at the history and I think that's some the history is really uh, a big source spot for a lot of people who come from these real communities because you know in America where you are from um to be a Japanese person who had a kimono in the Second World War could put you in danger of losing your life, of being imprisoned. Um, so actually, don't name your your, your laundry <laughs> brand kimono. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes you just have to, like, just say it how it is. And she can maybe only make that call because of who she is and the fact that she's, like, you know, this whole exotic. And I'm I, the more I read into cultural appropriation, the more I actually believe that it's this um, obsession with the exotic and making the exotic cool and mm, accessible, yeah. if you know what I mean. And she definitely uh, exemplifies that in a lot of ways. So, yeah. That's awkward. Yeah. Do you think the dominant culture, let's say um, mainstream white culture, because of being mainstream, there is, and being dominant at the same time, there is also an essence of being, uh, to a certain degree, perceived as slightly bland. So in order to kind of continue that um, interest, so especially with music artists like Katy Perry, where each album, there's a look, there's something she's borrowing from culturally. There's just a vibe that she's just taking on in order to keep that interest going. And it's not to say that white culture has, you know, no, I mean, cultural es- essence to it, but in order to keep its relevant and its interest at the top, you borrow from underneath and then therefore snatch from smaller marginalized communities. Um, um, coming back to your point about blandness, I really enjoyed that use of word. Um, interesting, interesting point. I mean, just going off the word blandness and just leap, leaping into the realm of food, I think you definitely get so many fusion restaurants, whereas like white chefs and they're like you, you know Asian fusion or like Caribbean fusion and and when it's done well you can feel that the chef just either like they just really appreciate these flavors and they're trying to incorporate it but then like at other times it's not done well and you're just like why are you bothering to make me a overpriced bun like an overpriced dim sum like even more overpriced than than like it would be and you're not even an Asian person like this is not good you know, like it's not even done well. So like, why bother? And you definitely get these, like, I remember watching an episode of Ugly Delicious where they talk about fried rice. And there was this like one food critic where she's, she's Asian American. And she was saying how she came across this restaurant that was like completely white owned, white run. And it was like Chinese food. And one of the reviews that came out was like, um, 
the first the first Chinese restaurant that you can go to and not worry about food poisoning or something like that. And people were just like, are you like, yeah, it is really, really shocking, that kind of stuff. But yeah. I also find with what's really interesting with food as well sometimes is when like things like get almost feel like they're slightly mislabeled. If you know what I mean, like suddenly someone decides that their version of like, I'm just going to use jollof rice because that's what I know I can talk about. Jollof rice with like whole tomatoes in it and is yellow instead of orange is jollof rice. And everyone is just like, eh, are you okay? Like, obviously you can like, we can play on what jollof rice is. We can have vegan jollof rice. We can have like, you know, jollof rice with brown rice and stuff like that. But if it doesn't actually even appear like the food right it's not actually the food and that's what people look to as that style of food then it becomes a tiny bit problematic and I know Daniela you were talking about was it kimchi oh that's an interesting one um so I recently came across this on the internet and I found it so fascinating there's two there's kind of like two aspects to the story um but just like really quickly, obviously kimchi is a Korean fermented side dish or condiment. So you can use it as a side dish or you can use it in your cooking. Um, most uh, commonly like the cabbage, the Chinese cabbage or white cabbage. Yeah, Chinese cabbage kimchi is the most yeah popular, but you can sort of kimchi anything. So there's yeah two, two things. One is that there is this um, recently there was um in, in November 2020, the ISO, which is like the International Organization for Standardization, they made a specification for the testing method for a thing called pao tai, which is a Chinese um, fermented vegetable. And the method of like pao tai versus kimchi is completely different. But anyway, so the ISO like made a specification for testing pao tai, which is the Chinese thing. Um and some Chinese media outlet came out and was like, we are leading the world in the international standard for making kimchi. And so understandably, the Korean community kind of lost their minds and was like, you're culturally appropriating um, what is, you know, a Korean thing when it's like a more dominant culture like China with Korea next to it and the whole kind of historical background of like various, um, yeah, disputes and whatnot is obviously going to be a sore point um and on the other side there is this like youtube star called lisa t and she has i think like 15 million followers on youtube and what she does is like um these videos of her doing like very traditional authentic chinese food or sometimes like other like um, preparations for like celebrations and whatnot and she's living in this like very um nostalgic very art directed um kind of rural china setting and she's doing things and it's like snowing and there's like puppies and it's like very very odd and it's actually a genre on youtube like this kind of like really authentic rural living um sort of videos, What's her name? like teaching you authentic She's called Li Ziqi, L-I-Z-I-Q-I. Um, and there's like, actually, like, if my, I really don't like her channel because I find it very fake, to be honest. I feel like it's very, very geared towards 
people who are not Chinese, basically. Uh, Although I'm sure she has a lot of Chinese followers. But I just remember talking to someone about this, and it was really funny because I follow another girl called Dianxi Xiaogu, and she's much more real. She's really authentic. She's like she's genuinely really authentic and does like very interesting cooking and and you know stuff that you don't really see that much like working with like lungs or like inner organs like really kind of um yeah old school preparation methods and making stuff like really really from scratch I just yeah she just feels more real and and she has half the followers and her show is less art directed it feels more real and you just kind of feel like it's interesting how it's kind of marketed but anyway long story short um these is that first girl she, there's a video where she's like um, making traditional Chinese fermented veg or something is like the in- English title. And the whole video is her making kimchi. And in the hashtag, it's like hashtag Chinese food. And so now if you look at the YouTube video, there's like over a um, hundred thousand comments and every single comment is in either in Korean or in or like a Korean person commenting in English saying kimchi is Korean. So like the backlash is mm. is huge. And you kind of just you kind of and you know like that her channel hasn't come out and either apologize or so corrected the hashtag. It's still a hashtag. Wow. It was there since nine uh nineteen. <laughs> it was there since twenty seventeen. <laughs> yeah nineteen. Twenty seventeen. So it's been there for a while and the video has like 11 million views. And I think part of it is probably the controversy around it. But, you know, she hasn't come out. Well, yeah, exactly. Like probably the the YouTube ads are also like raking in for her. But yeah, like she hasn't come out and apologized to change the hashtag or anything like that. And it's like, it is very true that in China people, I'm making kimchi in my kitchen, right? I'm not Korean. I just like love it. People in China are making it. People are manufacturing in China. But to call it Chinese food hashtag is just wrong. And yeah, it's, it's kind of just, I just find it quite interesting. Like the kind of the media outlet, like the kind of official um, global times mm. have come out like quite sort of being like, you know, oh, this is since then they've kind of come out being like, oh, the countries have a lot of friendship and cultural exchange, blah, 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 trying to kind of, to kind of like patch over it. But it's, it's, it's a really, really interesting one because one of the things that I look at, I looked at, was the very original Chinese um, document. The sorry, the 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 initial um, news article, and they use they actually use the word pao cai interchangeably with kimchi, and then when it was translated into English, it, they call it kimchi. And there's a part of me that's almost just like. At best, you can call it a kind of like lazy language game where it's just like, you know, people are not really going to understand Pao Tsai because it's less known, the word. Maybe they know what kimchi means and they're just going to use this word instead. But in the official like ISO document, the specification is said in like a specific line, this document does not apply to kimchi. So you just wonder, like, why would you do that? Mm. And then another part of the the news article is like, well, but 80 percent of the kimchi eaten in, in South Korea is manufactured in China anyway so to be honest like China has a standard and you're just like well but it's it's the it's the point like that's just business right that's just business for fulfillment and like procurement is not it has nothing to do with the culture like the UN the UN has like 
added the method for making kimchi, which is like once a year, the family get together and you, I, I mean, personally, I don't know that much about it. It's called kimjang, but it's a communal act of making kimchi. This is listed on the UN as like an intangible cultural heritage um, Korean. So yeah, there's no dispute about where it comes from. Um, but yeah, sorry, I went on quite a long time about that story, but it's definitely fascinating because it's like an area of the world where, I don't know, in the West, I think people don't often think about, like, I think it's interesting because it's like Chinese appropriating culturally, like neighboring um, food. I have an equivalent to that. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to keep it brief because uh, I, I don't want us to become a food, a cultural appropriation conversation. Um, but I saw a recent occurrence and it's been an ongoing thing about jollof rice. Um, so I can't remember what channel it was. On one of the um, Instagram pages posted um, uh, a woman making jollof rice, but she was um, from Gambia. And um, and underneath the, the caption was um, Gambia and, and um, Senegal has entered the conversation. And the Instagram comments went off. You know, everyone was saying, hey, this is a Ghana and Nigerian thing. We are not talking third and fourth place. Why discuss that? You know, that kind of like, just like we're not even acknowledging that they're in the conversation. And then one person was like, how are you putting vegetables in your um, your stew before making the rice? Like, this like costing the whole process. The interesting thing is many people didn't acknowledge in the conversation that um, jollof rice comes from the Wolof tribe from Senegal. It was never a Nigerian or Ghanaian creation. We've adopted it as neighboring countries. Um, so all the countries around Senegal love the rice and, you know, and make it in their own version. But at the same time, it because of, I guess, the notoriety and the cultural dominance of Nigerians and Ghanaians, we, and maybe even so more so because of the UK and the history, and we, we find more Nigerians and Ghanaians here but we dominate the conversations about jollof rice and it's part of our banter. Like we make it the best, we make it the best. And even now perceiving countries where it originates from, we're like, how are you entering this conversation? It's not for you. So Senegambia is where it comes from and that's where they it developed it, da, 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 you know, but <laughs> Nigerians and Ghanaians have run away with the conversation. The conversations around cultural appropriation have changed over time, right? So definitely within the fashion industry, when this whole sort of blew up in the, for me, when I noticed it anyway, it was like early 2010s, you were seeing a lot of people just being like Victoria's Secrets models, please stop wearing like, you know, Native American headdresses on your runway. Like that's completely inappropriate. You're all like pale, skinny girls wearing next to nothing. And this is like a sacred part of someone's actual cultural and um, identity um and then obviously you know like there's loads of examples for fashion there was also that mad halloween party that was hosted um where loads of the people from the, the industry like you know stefano gabano dominica dolce uh guys at etro people from g um it uh, 
G- Italia, GQ Italia. Sorry, I don't know why I couldn't say that. We're at the party and they were all in either blackface or like some sort of tribal gear. It was really atrocious. And, you know, maybe that simmered down to like, you know, Gucci's show a few years ago where people were just wearing turbans and it was quite clearly not intended to be, you know, it wasn't on a Sikh person. It was just intended to be like this cool hat and we were selling turbans for, or they were selling we, but they were selling turbans for like God knows. I think it was six hundred pounds plus or something ridiculous like that. And when you just think to yourself, that's actually actually a symbol of someone's faith and re- you know religious practice. That's that like, deeply disturbing. But it's very interesting to see how like we've come to a place of like conversations around ownership when it comes to fashion and like actually like um who are the people who are making the clothes, if you know what I mean? Who are the people who are part of the conversation, who are helping create the products? Because um, like a lot of frustration has been shown as well when brands have used symbols from tribes or communities. Uh, I'm just thinking about KTZ when they use motifs, uh, which were sacred to indigenous communities but you know they just chopped and changed them and just made them into really beautiful for to their eyes motifs on these the garments that they made and it's like no if you have people at the table who actually understand um how you know the culture the fabric and all of that um you don't you don't have those blunders and quite interestingly I saw I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this brand but Velisco which is like a major brand for creating like um, African rappers and material uh, that probably a lot of your, my mum wears, a lot of our parents wear. Um, But the actual African print that they print is made in Holland. And it's very interesting because they have a copyright on a lot of the patterns and the actual fabric which means that people from Africa can only buy the material from them. They can't, they can't make, they can't make prints in the, the, the designs that are kind of like symbolic to their own cultures. It's like this mad, like when I was reading about Velisco anyway, I was just like the layers of cultural appropriation. When you get to the place of ownership, it's basically like uh, what Velisco has done is they basically created fabric, which they've, which were once worn by people in traditional communities, but because they've copyrighted it, if you were a person from that culture who wanted to make your own, you wouldn't be allowed to because you'd be sued. Do you know what's interesting as well? There was an era in the, I guess, early 1900s where there was a movement in Nigeria to go back to traditional clothing. Um, and Fellas Kuti's mom was one of the people that like um, also was a part of it. So going back to traditional prints and wearing the kind of whole, you know, um, you know, gele and things like that. And so it's interesting how, in a weird way, the cultural attempt to get back to their own authenticity has led to someone profiting through, you know, yeah, economically. Mm-hmm. It's, it's quite messed up. I'm just on the Velisco website in the about and like the last paragraph about is like inspired by Africa, made with a technique derived from Indonesian batik, 
designed in the Netherlands. Visco's heritage and design signature is a multicultural melting pot of beauty and industrial craftsmanship. Yeah, but it's only marketed really to, yeah, that's that's very interesting that they're, they're taking the whole sort of like melting pot angle. But yeah, I think I only read, I only found out about Felisco and the fact that it was a company that came from the Netherlands and they had this mass copyright, like um, sort of embargo on the print because this, they'd sued like a young black designer or something who had tried to like um, make her own. <laughs> and they said that she couldn't, she couldn't actually, she wasn't allowed to do that. So that was like almost very interesting. And also in terms of how the conversation has changed for like you know the last couple of years I think black fishing has become like a major thing where almost um you know people are making themselves look more black or look more exotic let's just look more like they could be mixed race like oh they could be from here but a bit of there um and using that to profit like a lots of lots of influencers have been accused of black fishing um, and one of the biggest sort of frustrations with that have been, has been the fact that these people are sort of t- like taking opportunities, which could go actually go to people who who come from those heritage that heritage. Instead of doing what Kim Kardashian did, which is just like you know, I am clearly like I'm you know, I'm an American woman. I've got some Iranian background to me, but I'm not black. These people are being like, oh, I could be black. Look at my photos, my hair, my like my skin color and et cetera. And so no one sort of questions them until um, you see old, old pictures. And then you realize that actually that person is clearly just white. Yeah, it's been funny to see how that has emerged as like another issue to do with cultural appropriation. My question with that is one of the things that, cultural appropriation works on is um, the privilege or benefits that one community might have over the other, right? Um, And that's the dominant culture. So I guess if African-Americans are at the forefront of culture and in order to get any kind of cachet and be seen and be seen as cool, because blackness is associated with cool, um, they needed to tap into and also... um, appropriate that culture to receive that acknowledgement within the, the field of culture that they wanted to be in, if that makes sense. Kind of like the way people talk about Ed Sheeran and a, a few other artists where they started off on grime channels and platforms where black people are at the forefront of that culture in order to break through. And then if so doing, does that mean that they are culturally appropriating or they are having to assimilate because black people hold the cachet in that field. So you know how in society and the complexity of um, racism, black people don't hold the cachet and, you know, we're trying to work to change that and make it more even. But in certain cultural aspects, could you say that black people do and are the gatekeepers in certain rooms? So I, I, I wonder, I wonder. I think definitely when it comes to like, when you think about some of these people who have been accused of being of black fishing and what they look like, what for me, it reminds me is that in society, we, we, we are moving towards this sort of like preference. I think, especially when it comes like with the female body, um, if you want to bank on what is seen as like 
beautiful. Uh, if you make that person sort of look mixed race or like brown, tanned, do you know what I mean? Give them curly hair. Then we're kind of we're kind of working with a good set of tropes for for like what beauty should be like. And because a lot of people have been seem to want to mimic that, you know what I mean? It's it's kind of like this. It's also okay. I think this area of cultural appropriation is very interesting because it's looking about like at how people are actually appropriating bodies. Because like, say for example, if we talk about features, like black women's lips at the moment are really in, but maybe they're more in on like people who are not necessarily black dark skin. I think you're right in the sense of like, in order to uh, benefit from the advantages of let's say black culture, they adopt certain things, signifiers such as the lips, the asses, you know, the skin tone, their hair to appear ethnically ambiguous and more appealing. But at the same time, black people, black women in particular, aren't afforded the opportunity to weave in and out of culture. <clears throat> weave in and out of culture, adopt people's cultures in the same way and have the same um, uh, cachet attached to it uh, because of who we are and where we sit in society. Yeah. I also think there is something just almost a bit disturbing that's even happening when, when like, <laughs> with the fact that it is like a certain type of woman that we're all trying to assimilate into. Yeah. And it's like, that woman does actually, like for a lot of people, she does exist. You know what I mean? She's just, it's very funny that we're all trying to assimilate into or it's not, I don't want to put myself into this wee characteristic, but people who want to profit off of the whole sort of like, off, mm. off of their image are assimilating into this one idea mm. of beauty. And a lot of it is like almost what Velisco's bio was like. It's like mm. a melting pot, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? I hear that, I hear that. Um, and I think it, it uh, one of the things that I was also curious about is, I guess, the, what people have been thrown around recently, the oppression Olympics. In order to determine whether something has been culturally appropriate, you have to determine that, you know, one group is a, has been at a disadvantage or has been marginalised under another, the other is more dominant. And um, this has kind of come up within conversation between African-Americans and British-American actors um, and whether black people, black British people are culturally taking advantage, I wouldn't say appropriating, um, but taking advantage of being perceived as better actors um, and things like that. So, it, and, and it comes in general cultural appropriation, there has to be a perceived, um, you know, dominant and not dominant group. So it doesn't mean that you need to kind of nitpick and kind of determine and it opens up the conversation as to in different areas of society, uh, who is dominant, who isn't, and to what degree. And it's very interesting. to, But I, but I think we need to, and we need to be critical, but it also leads to that danger of also... Um, yeah, I think there's something to be said about the fetishization as well of as well of just different cultures. That's where I almost see the conversation regarding cultural appropriation, bodies and features and going. It's, it's to, towards the place of fetishization where it's just like, okay... We like we're going to do this because it's it's uh, will make me seem more exotic. Not even I don't think you will connect it and think to yourself that it is black per se. 
it's just more exotic. And it's quite funny to think how previously you would want to fight against that label of exoticism, right? But now it seems to be that we're all trying to get closer and closer. Or now, now not where, <laughs> but it seems like cultural appropriation is getting closer and closer to that line of exotic, uh, exotization, where it's supposed to just be like, you can't quite tell. That's what we're trying to aim for. It's like, oh, you can you quite tell? Like, And that's the best you can get because then you don't have to... Um, then you're almost given the the right to do whatever. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think with fetishization um, comes in actually in play the, the question of power and the gaze. So we talk about like the straight male gaze a lot and it's we talk about um, objectification. And I think this is maybe, you know, the fetishization of certain, certain looks and whatnot is... Is like a cultural a cultural gaze in one direction. With the whole blackfishing thing and the fact that influencers, so people who are trying to gain almost like an applause from society, who are trying to gain like sponsorships and all of that from just being themselves are all merging into this place where it's like pick and mix with features, you know? Like, okay, a person may have a black woman's lips, but a bright blue eyes and maybe like a big bum, but also like a small nose. We're all kind of blurring into this place where everything is just becoming like strangely too exotic. It's almost insulting because there are mixed race people out there who have these backgrounds, these very diverse backgrounds and who look that way. So actually, you know, they're posing as people out there. It's almost like we're trying to move to be exotic, to give us the right to be everything. The fact that society is almost liking, running to like that example of a human sort of tells us about the fetishization that we have of mixed bodies. And then on top of that, from a cultural appropriation lens, it's almost like, we want to get to this place where anyone, they could own anything. And so if they if they are one day looking street, you know what I mean? They have the hair and braids, you don't question it because they could come from that place. And actually that's then part of their cachet, isn't it? The fact that they can do that, but then the next day they can like straighten their hair and look completely different. And that's also part of like that aesthetic. So I think it's very interesting that we've come to a place where it's, it's not just about the fashion anymore. It's also about the bodies that we're almost trying to culturally appropriate. I think it's also strange that it seems to be a lot of white people who are trying to co-opt that image. But maybe also you can say the same of black people, because to a certain extent, like when people bleach and lighten their skin, are we not all trying to get that? image but maybe that's also a different conversation i don't know what you guys think it's it's not the same in the sense of like that is uh people of dark skin who have been told i guess through colonialism and through society's dynamics that you know uh, in order to be attractive which is the currency of a female in a patriarchal society you have to be closer in proximity to whiteness which is lighter skin um, and then also there's a, the question of assimilation as well and getting into certain spaces. So lighter skin, it means better quality of life as opposed to um, people who are 
trying to adopt the darker aesthetic or aesthetic of people of color in order to get that uh, cultural coolness or the revenue through ads and being more appealing in that sense of modeling and and more appealing, mass appealing. Um, so I think the angles are a bit different, especially historically in the context um, of power. Yeah, without a doubt, I think you're right. It's not cultural appropriation in that sense, is it? Because the power dynamics you're going through are completely different. But if you like, say, for example, I was also just thinking about someone like Kaliuchi, which is a great example of that, right? Because Kaliuchi was accused of basically also being a white uh, Latin, Latino, Latina woman as opposed to being what she's always presented herself, which is uh, more as a chola, like, so someone with, like, a thick Latin brown background, you know what I mean? And she's always used those chola symbolisms, like the the lips, the same style of makeup, to, to amplify her artistry and who she is. But actually, if she came from almost, like, the more privileged position, it begs the question of why she felt like she needed to model her body into that do you know what I suspected? Because I was working at a label at the time um, and um, I remember when we were kind of keeping track of her cells and figures and things like that, um, she would do like an English version song and a Spanish version song. Uh, and sometimes the English version song wouldn't necessarily chart as highly. Um, but then the Spanish version song in the Latin charts and things like that would chart quite high or not high, but as in would do a little bit better or, you know, had a bit more clout around it. Um, and so maybe she's pivoted and I'm saying maybe because I'm not in her camp of advisors and all that kind of stuff, but maybe she's pivoted musically in the direction of where she's seeing what was success. I found it really interesting, Rona, when you were talking about the picking and choosing of almost like physical attributes. Um, and it just, it just, it just felt to me like, um, a manifestation of consumerism divorcing from culture. So this idea that you can you can be a consumer and embody embody and make things put things on top of you, whatever you want, without really thinking about where it comes from. Yeah, I think that's why the the Kardashians get a lot of, you know, like people get quite annoyed with them just because in terms of how they do things with their surgeries and et cetera. And I don't know if you guys saw the whole thing about Chloe recently, that there was like an image of Chloe that came out of her that was unphotoshopped. In it, she just looked like, I think she just looked like a normal girl. Like her body isn't as curvy, even though she's had the surgeries to make her that way. She's quite pale. When you sometimes compare that with what she puts out of herself, it's a lot curvier. It's her, her bum is a lot bit like, taught her skin is a, a lot more browner and it's just it's just like obviously we all know they've all had lip surgery as well it's just like why are we picking and choosing these attributes which come from a certain type of come from black women really in the kardashians case and then just putting them into this thing and almost like capitalizing off of it i wonder whether in the case of black fishing whether it's about actually just giving whiteness the access to that the fact that those people are actually white but then they they present themselves in a way where they they look like they could be mixed it's just who are you marketing that to really there what you're doing in a in a weird way is that you're like you know no one from we all know no one from the black community is going to turn around and and if they see someone who's like light 
or like who could be mixed race and say don't have cane rows because that would be ridiculous. But on the flip side, people from a white community might turn around and be like, oh, I can do that too because actually she's she's quite close to me in some ways too. It's almost a bit gross to say it that people cash on bodies, but like, yeah. <laughs> um, on I guess on the black side of it, kind of like what we, we, talk, we touched upon earlier on, we elevate um, black people with uh, traditional European features. We elevate uh, light-skinned black people. We elevate, you know, people who have had surgery to westernise themselves in some particular way. And it's not even just black people. It's Asian people. It's all people, communities, um, in terms of what's pushed out in Bollywood and what's pushed out in the adverts in, in South Korea and things like that. So it's part of a larger discussion as well as as we kind of meet towards what is a mix or amalgamation of our features mixed together with the proximity of whiteness features. Um, But unfortunately, again, whiteness kind of still kind of benefits from it as opposed to, you know, other minorities having to sacrifice and, and also see themselves as not the standard of beauty. back to what tribe was saying about you know the the power um where the power lies which being one of the points of of determining whether something is cultural appropriation or not i think in addition to that is you know determining whether it's cultural appropriation or appreciation because i think if you think about jazz or food the idea of sampling or taking flavors is part of what what innovation you know regenerating flavors and mixing sounds that's not something that has to stop right is that's where inspiration creativity is but is a real line of are you just taking that for your own benefit and profiting off it as someone who has more access to the platform and exposure or are you genuinely like appreciating it and using it and respectful of the history and the complexities that comes around it. Uh, I have a point to that, bringing it back to music. There's many examples, um, especially with America, uh, um, um, about the different genres of music as it was kind of introduced into society and and became more mainstream. So if we go back to jazz um, and that being seen as, you know, a terrible kind of God forsaken genre when it first came out into the mainstream and could only be played in certain areas where it was like, uh, get away. Um, and then when you look at today, the, the highest selling jazz album is from Kenny G or something like that. Or the highest selling jazz artist is Kenny G. Um, and then when you think about rock and roll, same conversation, um, like, uh, again, rock and roll was seen as a kind of hedonistic genre you know, swaying the teenagers away from the good kind of post-war society. And then, you know, highest selling artist in general, um, Elvis, you know. And then when you think about R&B, you know, I'm sure you can put Justin Bieber in there. Um, And many of these genres that were created by um, African-Americans 
now being dominated or in terms of like culturally recognized by white people. Um, it's very shocking. It's very like, and hip hop again, sorry, Eminem. So it's very shocking how, um, like I was saying at the beginning of this conversation, the interactions between the mainstream dominant culture and the sub uh, marginalized communities and subcultures, and then who becomes the face of that, if that makes sense. Uh, like, as we've been saying, it's, yeah, it's a, a very fascinating kind of conversation about the power dynamics and the different things that come into play in the histories and recognizing um, how it affects those communities as well. Um, financially, and through recognition. I think the history definitely um, is an example of all of that. But on some level, it's also, I can see that, you know, we live in a world where things are just so globally accessible. And so like people's tastes, when you think of, you know, when I think of my own tastes, they're not, you know, they're not just simply specific to my own cultural background, you know, being someone who's, grown up where I have and grown up uh, surrounded by what I have you know I've definitely got um, things I love that come from all different places and I think the question around cultural appreciation really comes down to how do you how do you embody that um, love or you know appreciation that you have for something that another culture makes in a respectable fair way I think that is the question that decides what is cultural appreciation and not cultural appropriation right we can use the example of Bruno Mars which I think you said before which was really like quite good but Bruno Mars obviously he's from Hawaii and he makes a lot of amazing R&B music right the act of him making R&B music in itself isn't it makes sense to him because he loves R&B but it's about understanding how you can do that in a way that doesn't harm or take away from the group you're obviously inspired by. And I think like if we, there was another example you gave of Beyonce where she uh, did a Coldplay video, right? And she was dressed up as a sort of in a sari, obviously trying to connote that sort of like South Asian woman sexuality and stuff like that she's a brown woman she's a black woman but who's stealing from another culture but obviously not doing it in a way where there was any credit given to people who do this every day right and instead trying to like profile that herself and um spotlight herself and you think about what Beyonce's done over the last year with Black is King. Similarly, she's a black woman, but she's a black American woman. But what she did with Black is King is very different from what she was doing initially in that Coldplay video, because it's like working with people who come from the, you know, from Africa, spotlighting the artists from Africa in what she's doing throughout the whole project. And also I think doing the research, like, very you know instead of just having that stereotypical image of whatever it is that she, like maybe she thought of when she thought of um Indian culture she's she's actually got depth in Blackest King that so many people could resonate with throughout the diaspora and I know that obviously has been like 
you know, there's always, there's always going to be someone who thinks that it's not good enough because she's not from there. But on a mass scale, I think a lot of people were like, this is amazing. This is so great that you've done this. And this is what we would call maybe cultural appreciation. I think a lot of people sit at an intersection or play a position of power, um, which gives them the responsibility, especially if they're in a lucrative position of power, gives them the responsibility to pay women, I struggle to say this word, remuneration, remuneration, um, and also, um, like you said, spotlight those who wouldn't. And it's, it's when I say in an intersectional position of power, in the sense of like, we won't necessarily access access Southeast Asian culture ourselves, but when presented in a way through a, a lens that we recognise, then we'd be more susceptible to it. And that kind of, to some extent, I, I can understand why a lot of British people may feel more comfortable with H or Eminem being the face of grime and hip hop as opposed to a side of culture that they don't know. But then at the same time, it, it, it speaks to society, but it also speaks to those in a position of that power to then try and balance it out and, and have that responsibility to balance it out. Yeah, I, get, I guess I get what you're saying. Basically, because they have the power, they're the people who can, they, they're the people who have the access to even yeah. try and readjust it because they've got As the power to yeah. in the first place. Right? Yeah. The second time round. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying, yeah. Obviously, that's a, yeah, the yeah. second time round. <laughs> yeah, that goes without saying. Obviously, she, she, like, if I just decided to do that, like, what, what yeah. ripple effect yeah. would that have? And that, that <laughs> I think also it, there is a lot of onus on us as society to educate ourselves as well. It shouldn't just be on the artist, I think. As consumers of music and art and clothing, you know, to question these things and to go, where does this come from? And actually educate ourselves on other people's cultures a bit to have a bit of an understanding of what we're buying into and not just accept what is being packaged to us all nicely wrapped by an artist that we're familiar with, but is as, not to be sad or deep, but, but as blind as Taylor Swift, you know? Um, where is it coming from? Where is she picking this from? Where is she picking that from? Um, you know, and are these uh, communities getting anything out of it like we can't just keep consuming from familiar artists giving us um distilled versions of their perception of, of culture why as a black british person should i get my taste of africa through beyonce i should you know what i mean like it, it's my responsibility to know or investigate or to question into and look into yeah and i think if you take it down from back from the ephemeral place of music and and whatnot and bring it back to always some of the things we're talking about which is like fashion let's talk about retail let's talk about food and that like tangible product that you can buy um i think that like consumer education is is really key because you can look into like now more and more companies are much more transparent about where they get their materials or what what are they about i think you don't have to look that deeply or that hard to to figure out if something is a either authentic or be like done in a kind of appreciate like culturally appreciative and giving back kind of sense and choosing to support those businesses and those brands instead um is something that's very much within our power as consumers yeah i would hate for anyone like i'm not standing here to and saying cultural mixing 
is not what we don't want to do. In the world we live in, I don't think that's what really what we're saying. The, the question around cultural appropriation for me is always a question about access. It's about the distribution of wealth. It's about power. And it's also about the way that society functions today. And in that, through one lens of my eyes, I can say Eminem, his music was good. It was funny. It was witty. I liked him as a rapper. And then... And I can also say he was a good rapper. But to, through another lens of my eyes, I can also say maybe the way he was marketed, the way he blew up, the fact that people put him on, you know, the higher echelons of rappers there is, it it does come down to his race and the fact that he was, he's just more palatable. Also, I think slightly exotic <laughs> because the idea of a white person rapping is exotic and like, to, to some degree. And that's what we tend to buzz off of. But at the same time, the fact that he can rap and the fact that he makes music isn't bad. But it's just like, how do you do, how do you be that person maybe who uh, is influenced by all these things and does take a real interest in a responsible way? There are ways of doing it, right? It's true. It's true. Um, and that's it. I think we need to uplift the ones doing it responsibly and the ones who are actually try to do it from the communities because um, we don't do that enough, you know. Um, and like I said, we often take the ones that are pushed right in our face as opposed to the people creating. And it's quite hard. How do you access that sometimes? The, the villager who's creating traditional print um, from Australia, let's say, and, you know, how, how here from the UK we're going to find out about it and and support that, like through the website or wherever, without, let's say, it's first being spotlighted from a bigger platform. So it's, it, we, we've got to do the work, but we've also got to hope that the people who are the gatekeepers are also doing accurately spotlighting and rightfully so. Yeah, I agree with you there. For the extended version of this show with a selection of great music, tune in on Mixcloud or on Soho Radio. Thank you very much for tuning in to this episode of Third Waves. You can follow us online at Third Magazine on Instagram. That's third with three eyes.